Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Here on Alex Garrett Podcasting, welcome back in. And I can now understand that, you know, I've been posting it almost every year since I became Facebook friends with them. I can understand why Gary U.S. Bond would play school, would would write that song and sing that song, School Is Out. Um, because, well, <laughs> his birthday's in June. In fact, his birthday is today. So happy birthday, Gary U.S. Bond. And I guess he was very eager to have school out. And I hope... To those who may be still dealing with the DE learning through high school, and then, of course, those who finished with college, I hope it wasn't as painful a time as we thought. Uh, school is out for many, and for those who are not, those who finished strong, God willing to you, and may you get through it. And someone who has a couple, who has two kids and has been balancing his own life's work, Tom Barbieri. Uh, join me tonight for my Saturday sit-down. Let's take a listen. All right, well, it is our Saturday sit-down, and I'm bringing uh, another guest, a new face, a new voice to this podcast, uh, Tom Barbieri. Now, a little backstory on Tom. I met him through the Next Guy Up podcast, Keith and Michael Potter, and, and I think that connection was hitting off uh, right from the start, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, it was. Um, I've known Keith for going on 35 years now. We've been friends since uh, our high school days and in, in, on Long Island. And uh, he and I started the uh, the podcast about four years ago. And then oh, Keith has wow. really taken it on, taken it to the next level. And he and his cousin Mike do a great job. So, so you were yeah, kind of the brain. You were a co brainchild then of that pod. Yeah, a little bit. Keith had reached out um, to me and said he was thinking about starting a podcast. I've, you know, I know Keith really well, and I've always known that he's very engaging and he would be, um, he'd be really great at it. So as soon as I heard he had the the inkling to do it, I jumped right on it and said, here, I'll help you. So I did all the production, editing, posting and uh, hosting of it and everything. So yeah, it was great. You're very involved with that kind of media world. Do you think what we're doing here almost every day is changing voices changing minds hearts do you think it's playing as much of a role as say terrestrial radio right now um i do i think that as um as our social world expands and as media expands to more what we used to call them alternative channels which i believe are becoming more you know what was alternative two or three years ago is now becoming more mainstream Mm -hmm. um when people begin to become more familiar with those uh, those channels of uh, of getting information, of sharing information, um, I think it's I think it can be really great. And I think that um, I mean anybody can have a podcast. Anybody can put together their own um, their own video show. Um, sure. Anybody can post on YouTube. Anybody can put a blog out there, which is which all in all is really great. And I think this medium and being able to have people be connected. Um, really just everyday folks like you and I to be able yeah. to share experiences, um, to be able to provide different perspectives to issues that are important to each and every one of us. 
um, because that's really how we learn and that's how we grow is we don't grow by looking at people on pedestals and just paying attention to our leaders. Well, right. that can be important. I really think that we grow from understanding our own experiences and the experiences mm -hmm. of others, taking in the information and then applying what works and, and putting away what doesn't. And I know you, you've done that on your own pod. Uh, and is it active, your own pod right now? And, and if not, when will we see it back up again? Um, it's not, it's, it's not publicly active. I'm not actively pushing out content at this time. Um, I don't think I've recorded a podcast in probably two years. Okay. Um, there's still some content floating around out there on iTunes and some of the other mainstream cool. uh, podcast providers. Um, I do intend to get back into it, but um, over the last couple of years, I've grown very authentic and intentional in being able to want to share information that means something to me. Mm -hmm. because I want to be able to serve others the right way. I don't want to serve just for the sake of getting my voice out there because I like to hear my own voice. <laughs> I want to be able to get information out there that people can really use, um, absorb, and figure out what, what works for them. All right. Well, let's say podcasters, other podcasters are listening to this, and it sounds like you've got a lot of experience in this. So what makes you want to be a guest on a podcast, and how can – podcasts now that we're starting there how can podcasters really grow what they're doing and be meaningful when they invite guests on um i think it's just a really about um you know like i said about being authentic i think that when we find um i like to call myself um an exceptionally extroverted introvert where okay. I, as i really enjoy my time alone and at times, very often, I seek my alone time because that helps me stay focused, it helps me stay centered, and it helps me revisit my true personal values and beliefs. When I begin to do that, I begin to develop a desire to want to share with sure. people. And um, I've really learned, especially over the last couple of months, that there are people that I really connect with, and there are people that I have really great conversations with. And um, I've learned to really be able to connect with people, not just looking at them eye to eye, whether it be over video or, you know, uh, across my desk at work, but connecting with them soul to soul. And when I think that connection is made, the conversation really begins to flow. Um, and when that conversation flows, uh, there is an interest that, mm -hmm. is that, that comes from it. Um, I know when you and I first connected on Keith and Mike's podcast uh, last week, there was really a natural connection. That's why I look forward to this uh, conversation all week. Same here. And I've got to ask you, you started out as a sports guy. So at what point did you say, you know what, maybe sports podcasting isn't the end all be all here. Let's expand a little bit. And now you got a website. So for those who follow what you're doing and may not know how you got into it, transitioned into what you're doing, tell us about that. Yeah, so I actually started as um, a health and wellness. Uh, health and wellness has always been my my primary background. I studied um, biology, human anatomy, and physiology in college uh, at UC Santa Cruz in California. Um, I've always worked, well, actually not always worked, but I've always been in that industry. Um, I began coaching athletes, specifically okay. runners, uh, marathoners, long distance runners in the late 90s. Cool. Um, and then through the 2000s, um, over, the over the course of the past uh, probably six or seven years, I began to really drill down into the health and wellness field from a coaching and consulting perspective. 
So my focus, jumping to now, my focus is really on um, habit development, behavior change, um, helping people understand their own individual wellness and health. Um, I'm not a physician, so I don't provide direct medical advice. I work with people in partnership with them and how they can best interact with their medical professionals they see, their doctors, their chiropractors, their naturopaths, their personal trainers. Um, so I really kind of walk hand in hand with people in partnership to help them meet or help them identify, build a plan towards, and ultimately meet their health and wellness goals, whatever that may be. Tom, so it's interesting. That's, that's my coaching. It's interesting you say that because I think now more than ever, you have to know how to talk to your doctor because we're in COVID still, we're in this crisis mode. And maybe before this, it was maybe easier, but do you think there's been a new need to know how to talk to your doctor through all of this? Um, yeah, I really, I really hope so, Alex. I think that this time uh, over the, uh, the past, I guess we're going on 90 days now of being, um, of uh, COVID-19 being top of mind and the coronavirus, um, people hearing words like the immune system and virus um, and contagion, all these words. I really hope that folks begin to put themselves in the place to where they're able to reset their values and beliefs around health and wellness. Okay. Um, and they really uh, take into consideration their own individual health and wellness, because I think that's most important overall. Uh, quite often in the media these days, we hear a lot about um, what's happening that is negative. We hear a lot about positive tests. We hear a lot about deaths. We hear a lot about um, hospitalizations, ventilators, vaccines. Um, herd immunity also has wellness, been thrown around a lot. Herd, yeah, herd immunity. I think of health of health and wellness as 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 a game, as a sport. There's an offense, and then there's a defense. Okay. And in sports, we often have the debate: what wins championships? Is it mm -hmm. offense or defense? Well, it kind of depends. There are definitely championship teams where that are more defense heavy, and they win there are more teams that are more offense robust and they win. Hmm. The important thing is for each one of us is we need to find that balance of what works. We need to know when for ourselves to be offensive, proactive when it comes to our health and wellness. And then we need to know intentionally when we become defensive and when is it the right time to take an antibiotic? When is it, when is, how does a vaccine work and understanding that it's, it's when we, it's when we get that balance that right. we really understand um, how our health and wellness works. And when we understand, we take the right actions. No, and that's an interesting analogy, offense versus defense. And so to that point, though, do you think that uh, there could be a more awareness that you shouldn't take an antibiotic right away? Or if you should, like, obviously prescriptions are through the roof nowadays. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So it, it really depends. I mean, I am not... Uh, I want to be clear. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not against antibiotics. I'm not against vaccines. Um, I think all those have their place in our um, defensive medical culture. I do. Um, and in some cases, proactive medical culture. So um, I can't broadly say that they're good or bad. W what I can say is that I think there's a time when uh, a person can be well-informed enough to make a decision with their doctor 
to know that their doctor's recommendation is the best for them. And when they don't understand it, they know the right questions to ask. Now, do they go back to you if they have an issue with what the doctor said, or is that not really legal? Or what? I mean, I don't know how to word they, that, but they they can. I mean, I've had people do that. I've had people um, stave off doctors' advice to see, um, you know, because they wanted to do more research and they wanted to look online or they wanted to do something, which is all well and good. That's their decision. Um, I I uh, I do not jump in and tell people not to pay attention okay. to the doctor because I think it's very important that you follow your doctor's directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when it comes to a much more acute, when it comes to acute, uh, acute diseases and even, even chronic diseases, I think it's important to follow a doctor's direction. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a, what I like to see people do is develop the habit around asking questions about how it pertains to them. Like if a doctor is going to prescribe a certain prescription, I believe it's important to understand, well, what's this prescription going to do to my day-to-day life? How's it going to make me feel? What are the side effects? And what is the long term is, you know, how, how often should I be on this prescription? You know, if I'm, if I have a sinus infection, then I'm going to take what's called a Z-Pack. And I know I'm going to be off of it probably in seven to 10 days, no problem. But if I have high cholesterol, and someone puts me on Lipitor or some something that's going to drive down my high cholesterol, there is typically no protocol for when that ends. You just take that until you reach a certain measurement in your blood test. Which could lead to it's overdosing, good, no? It could. It mm. could. And yes. people typically only get blood tests once, maybe twice a year, because a lot of folks in medical insurance plans don't allow for more than twice or even three times a year to get blood tests. Okay. So, you know, it's important to understand what that prescription is going to do to you. Like, what is that going to do to you? Like cholesterol is actually something we need in our body. So while we're treating cholesterol, we're, we're, you're taking that Lipitor to drive down cholesterol. Cholesterol is really not the problem here. It's Mm. what's happening into your arteries that you're so I believe it's important to identify the condition that's causing the prescription to be taken. And let's work on that, you know, while you're taking the prescription, while you're following the doctor's orders, but let's take care of the larger, uh, the larger issue first. Tom, I love, I love that you're talking about this because I do think, unfortunately, the alternative ways to get healthy, the industries are scared of that. And I think that's good that they're scared of it because you guys are offering a different approach than what we normally hear. Yeah, um, I believe, I, I really believe that, um, and I really hope that this time in our, in our culture, in our country is going to cause a mind shift that, and a paradigm shift that's going to drive people into being more proactive about their immunity um, and about their individual health, because that's what this is all about. Um, mm. uh, back in the end of January, when the coronavirus was first starting to show up in the headlines, we were starting to hear about it. I instantly, I, I love doing all sorts of research. Um, I have okay. lots of connections um, in uh, various institutions like NIH and Johns Hopkins uh, locally here. Um, I have folks that work for um, prescription drug companies that I reach out to, all, all sorts of the spectrum. And I have no problem dropping an email or pick up the phone and asking or dropping a text to somebody asking them a specific question about something. That's so good. I've done all sorts of input um, from where we're at right now. And you know, it's right now it's all about our immune system. And mm-hmm. regardless of what the headlines are saying about how many people are dying, who's infected, what drives our health is and our wellness and what determines how long we live 
is the health of our immune system. I love that. I, I love that. And it, it's actually fitting we're talking about this today because it was 76 years ago we stormed the beach of Normandy. 76 years later, you've got 90 to 100-year-olds surviving corona. So do you have any interesting uh, um, perspective on why they are? Um, well, on that note, I want to show you something here, Alex. I'm going to get up. Sure, sure. So this, there's a picture here that's sitting behind me that you may have seen. This is my, uh, so my grandfather. There you go. That's that gentleman right there, uh, Robert Lorigay. That's my grandfather. He was a radio man on the USS Akinar. Um, and he was actually, his was uh, General Hodges' first army headquarters of Omaha Beach, June 6th of 1944. So my grandfather was the radio man that radioed. Um, he got a tap on the shoulder from the NATO or the allied commanding officer for the invasion of Normandy to begin. Wow. They got the weather clearance and they got to do it. So it's, I mean, I, I didn't even, uh, I mean, I, my bad. I didn't even realize it was June 6th, but it is June 6th. So um, 76 years ago today that happened. And I remember hearing the stories my grandfather telling me about the, um, uh, about the soldiers that came back to the ship where he took on the soldiers that were wounded so badly that they weren't going to make the trip back to England across the channel. Wow. So he had a chance uh, to see some really, really bad stuff. So, um, you know, I just... Uh, How long did he live, if you don't mind me asking? He, uh, my grandfather passed away, I believe in March of 2011 is when he passed away. And, so you had probably a good 40 years of stories you could hear from him. Oh, you know? my grandfather was, I was lucky enough to um, be uh, born to a, a very young mother um, in Bayshore, New York. So I had lots of time with my uh with my grandparents my mom's parents and uh, my grandfather was uh was a, a tremendous man a wonderful man and um he was uh yeah he was great hearing his stories and you know getting together with his um with his world war ii buddies his navy mm -hmm. buddies and um when they opened the world war ii memorial here in dc him and my grandmother came down and they were part of that and hearing those stories were just uh they were so I mean, they were frightening, but they were so heartwarming to hear him tell those stories. The way he from said his it, heart. yeah. Yeah, the way he said it. So, okay, now that, now that you got me on this, is there a way to hear that radio call, so to speak, from him? Uh, I've tried so hard to try to find that and the stories. I've done a lot of research and I, I was able to find the story. I've talked, um, when I, and talking to him, of course, and then talking to a lot of his Navy buddies. Um, you know, I'm not able to find that recording at all. But that doesn't mean I'm not looking, but I'm, I'm going to help you look. I'm going to, now I'm joining okay. the fight to find this. I'm kind of curious now. Okay. You, and I've written down the USS Akinar. Yeah. The USS Akinar. And your grandfather's name just out of one more time. Uh, Robert Lorigay, L-A-U-R-I-G-U-E-T. And uh, I want to go back to, and this is, this is pretty special. Um, but what is the reasoning of the immunity of these guys that did survive that to survive this? As far as immunity goes, well, I mean, there was a lot of stress involved. I can tell you that. Um, you know, if uh, you know people that were surviving such a um, such a horrible time and uh, mm. such a stressful situation, to be able to survive that, um, to move through all that uh, that war, all that death and injury. Um, I mean, there's a lot. Of, uh, we lost a lot of Americans uh, mm. in the war. We lost a lot of Americans on that day and the subsequent day. Um, but there's, there's a lot that survived yep. um, and there's a lot that came out of and what we call the greatest generation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. And there's a reason why they are the greatest generation, not the greatest generation because they invented the internet and they drove cars and they, you know, developed microchips and they did all sorts of things and they invented 5G. That's not why they're the greatest generation. They were nope. the greatest, they're the greatest generation because they survived. Like they were tough, like, and things sucked for them at times. I mean, could you imagine sitting in a foxhole on Omaha beach for how many days when there are bodies around you? I mean, and there's sand in parts mm. of your body that you can't even imagine. I mean, I get upset if I'm on the beach too long when I go, when I go to field five at Robert Moses, I can only imagine wearing 60 pounds of equipment and having Nazi bullets fly over my head. I, I can't imagine. And then watching all that death and destruction and then coming back and then, mm. you know, not knowing what's, what's next. They definitely but, had forms of PTSD and that was oh, never really absolutely. talked about that. Absolutely. They had stress, PTSD, um, uh, substance abuse, uh, violence. I mean, there's a lot, but again, a great majority of them survived because their bodies, their minds, their immune system was designed to carry them through stress. It helped them heal. And Mm. that's what our immune systems do. Our immune systems, the human body is incredibly intelligent. It's designed exceptionally well. It's the, probably the greatest machine of that was ever invented Mm. you know leonardo da vinci was fantastic when he was he wanted to know about the body yeah well affected bodies and as we're talking about that and by the way i forgot to mention that you are out of dc now you moved down there years ago and you're in dc we'll talk about the tensions down there that you might be seeing from where you sit and and from where you sit is where i want to pick up next because a lot of people make the argument why are we sitting too much during the day why is the posture now we're seemingly okay with that sitting down all day. It just, it boggles my mind how we can be so outrageous, you know, so worried about our posture and yet now we're okay with it. I don't know. Maybe I'm not seeing it the right way or something. Oh no, I think you're right. I, I wonder that as well. I wonder, you know, why we're, I mean, I, I know why we're being told to stay home. I know why we're being told to hunker down and to watch Netflix and why there's so much going on. Like I get that. I'm, I'm not, you know, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think there are things that we could be doing to create a variety in our lives uh, mm-hmm. that um, helps us really stay well. Um, there's lots of things people can do to keep themselves healthy um, and keep them keep their immune system strong and to keep thriving within mm-hmm. their own four walls and under the roof of their home. And how would you recommend? Do you have any recommendation you can spit out on this podcast today? Yeah, so my, my, my philosophy when I work with folks is really built around um, three main buckets, I call them, whereas you have um, nutrition, you have stress management, and then you have movement. Mm. And all of those really need to be addressed. And if you think of like a Venn diagram, they're always kind of floating. And we like to stay focused on that center in the middle to where there's an equal overlap between the three we're never going to be perfect. We're, we're always going to be heavier in one area, lighter in another area. And, you know, we're never going to have perfect balance, but having the intention of being perfectly balanced for the most part is good enough. Sure. So I think that, you know, when it comes to nutrition, I think it's really about um, uh, eating, making sure we're eating uh, as, as much unprocessed food as possible. Um, as much food that is as close to how nature produced it as possible. Um, I don't adhere to any specific style of diet. Um, I don't push people towards paleo or vegan or low carb or whichever. I, I, 
I try to find a balance between what's right for a person's individual physiology and what they can do realistically. Mm. Um, are you are you afraid then that the vegan moment movement is kind of taking away from the whole idea that meat's good for us? Uh, I think that's a worry for me. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I think there's some. Uh, I think there's some uh, aspects to that that people need to think about. I think there are reasons to be vegan. I like to call more plant based. I think vegan is more of a lifestyle. Okay. Plant based is much more of the diet focus. Um, when people begin to put walls around things they do, it creates restriction. And I don't necessarily think from a mental perspective that restriction is, um, I think it, I, I believe much more in a, a replacement approach and understanding, okay, you had this for breakfast. Let's take a look at what you have for breakfast. And what is that we can replace that might be better for next time. So, you know, if somebody had dairy and they're starting to have some indigestion, well, let's take out the dairy. Let's try you know, an almond coffee mixer in your coffee instead. Let's see what that does. So I'm really into helping people understand what might be some replacements for what they're doing now to address symptoms or feelings that they're having. And And part of that is about, you know, animal-based products versus plant-based products. And it sounds to me like you're okay. You see, I agree. I I, I would see where it comes from. Like we have to experiment with our body, what we react to, what we don't react to. Um, Do you think we do that enough in this country or are we kind of all one way and that's it? Uh, no, we are definitely not enough like that in this country. We are, um, I don't even think we're one way and that's it. I think what we do in this country, generally speaking, is that we are focused so much on what other people are doing that we fall into a trap of falling, a di- falling into a dietary habit that mm-hmm. is much better for someone else, not for us, to where we watch TV, we watch The Biggest Loser, and then we think like, oh, I need to go run on a treadmill for 48 hours straight, not eat anything, and then weigh myself on Sunday to find out how much weight I lost. That's not necessarily healthy for you. It might be good for some people, but it's not going to be healthy for you. I have certain things that I can eat that make me feel good and also that match my activity level, but those things may not work for somebody who has different goals and has different physiology. So that's where I think that some of those cookie cutter type of diets and those dietary restrictions can really work against somebody's goals. Well, and so I, I was not a fan of uh, supersize me by Michael Moore, but it sort of did give us an inside look into what was going on, right? Oh, it sure did. It sure did. And it, um, it gave us, uh, at least it gave me some awareness about if somebody was sticking to, you know, just eating McDonald's for, uh, I think he did it for 30 days, something like that, um, or just you know sticking to one thing, or even just identifying what that type of food can do to you was uh, was informative. I mean, I'm definitely not somebody who is restricts myself on fast food. I'll definitely indulge myself in fast food, and it can be very convenient at times. But it's not it's not a habit. It's not a go to. One of the things I've learned in my own journey was to not look at food as a Uh, as a stress management technique. So that's where, again, where I talk about those three buckets, nutrition and stress management, we have to also understand how they're also independent of each other. So one should, while one may work with the other, one may also take away from what the other is trying to do. So I think we have to also understand that balance. And I think we all, we all know, and we can all admit that fast food and what drives us sometimes to fast food is the comfort of it. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed in our society, generally speaking, 
individuals can be different, but we have to address how we view food. Do we view food as an event or do we view food as us nourishing ourselves in order to survive, which is how we evolved? Well, and that's, I mean, I couldn't really eat the first few years because I had some esophageal issues, so I couldn't wait to eat. That kind of became an event for me. Now it's just sure. regular, regular. Right. Um, but the stress, so do you think then that we humorize stress eating or glorify it too much? Like, oh, look, she's just, you know, she or he are just stress eating. Like, that's okay. Are we giving it too much of a pass? I think at times we are. At times we, I, um, we can sometimes make excuses for folks that help us, help us feel, um, feel like it's okay to not jump in or say something or to maybe suggest some help might be needed for people, especially people that are close to us. Mm. Um, even for ourselves, at least, you know, for me, I went through things that made me really think about how food restriction was negative and how judging people for what they ate was very negative for me and how thinking that my way of eating was the best way was not healthy at all for me like i had to have somebody point that out to me before i really realized that well um do you want to tell us about that journey and how you got to transform yourself from what you heard and listening to that yeah so back in uh it was probably you know late 2012 i attached myself to somebody who was very uh, i'll call him a diet guru who was very much uh he was very big on the internet and was very much a facebook celebrity um social media heavy and still kind of is these days and he lived by you know a dietary guide guideline that was exceptionally restrictive it was so restrictive that i mean he called it no sugars no grains and um when i tell you alex you shouldn't do this don't do that here's what it does to you what does your mind instantly do? Trust it that wants, person. Well, it does trust that person, but sometimes it says, oh, well, now I want it more. Now okay. I want it more. And when I was fighting those feelings of, oh, well, why shouldn't I have this? You know, I did my research. I looked into it. I was convinced the person was very charismatic. I connected with them uh, in real life and like, oh, this is great. And I kind of, you know, fell into the spell of, you know, what it was. And um, then I started to hear a lot of judgment of people that followed the same type of suit. It was almost like a cult aspect. Mm. I mean, if I had to think about it, it was very, very culty. And there was a lot of judgment going around. And I found myself judging people for eating certain wow. things. Like if I saw somebody drinking a 32 ounce Diet Coke, I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with that person? That's horrible for you. Would you tell it to their face or? No, I wouldn't say it to their face. <laughs> okay. But I would, I would think it, which for me was almost as bad. Um, you know, I became very much, um, very secluded. I became, and I started to judge myself whenever I wanted to have something that was outside of that no sugars, no grains type of regimen. Oh. Um, and I lost a lot of weight. Um, I went down from about 230 pounds to about 168 pounds. And was that um, dangerous for you? Would you say, or? Uh, for me, it was because I started to feel bad. Like I was still running, oh. I was athletic and I started, my body started to break down. And it was an unhealthy weight for me. Um, and did you, you say seclusion. So you lost your friends too while trying to do this whole thing? Or? Well, I became, I became very, um, you know, exclusionary as far as like when I was, when, when it became time to spend time with friends, 
I became very concerned about, oh my God, what am I going to eat? Like everything came about, oh my God, what am I going to eat? Or I can't eat at that restaurant. Like I began to, mm. like this stress started to boil in my mind that just caused all sorts of negative reactions in my body that are not good for anybody. So again, thinking about the three buckets, my stress was a little bit high. My nutrition was suffering because I wasn't balanced and I was, I was becoming out of balance and it just, it wasn't working for me at all. So I just had a, I had to break free from that world. I had to acknowledge that I did have a issue with food. Um, you know, I, I don't, I wasn't, I didn't diagnose myself into any certain type of uh, diagnosis or anything like that. I just realized that I was having a little bit of an issue. I needed to change some things and it took me a good year, year and a half to get back to a healthy mindset and a healthy, you know, physical set as well. Tom, did you, did you put all of this in writing your experiences? Because I'm sure there's still people out there today dealing with that kind of issue. Yeah, I did actually. It's actually on um, one of my personal websites, uh, Um, It's actually there. I write, there's a good three or four part series that I wrote um, about my experience. Mm. Experience through it. Well, and now we're, we're, we're seeing stress eating again because we're seeing what's on our television screens and we're doing all this, but you're out there in the heart of this. You're in Virginia slash DC. How agitated is your city right now? And what, what's your thought on all that taking place right next door to you? Oh my gosh. It seems like the district of Columbia has been agitated for the last 244 years. I mean, ever since, uh, I mean, there's always things going on in DC, which is, which is good and bad. Our, our economy always stays pretty healthy because of every four to eight years, we get a revolving door of people that work for the government. Um, here now, it's um, being the kind of the, the center of the free world is not all it's cracked up to be because there are things happening so close that are not mm -hmm. great. Um, there's a lot of things happening all over our country right now that are not great. So there's a stress level here um, that's really unique and different than I've seen in other parts of the country. It's gotten so bad. They actually removed the, the, the Pentagon, took about 400 troops or something out of Washington. To Somehow that was going to protect the, the nation's capital and the White House. I'm not sure how, but that's how they, they figured that out. I don't know right. what that was about. Um, but as a whole, we're watching this all together. And I can't imagine the... We thought COVID was stressful. I can't even watch the riots because I get freaked out. So what is the healthy alternative to blocking that out firstly? And if we do indulge in it, how can we rebound ourselves and build our immunity in the process? Yeah, so one of my, um, one of my aspects of my wellness program, again, going back to the three buckets about stress management, is um, an incorporation of a, of a practice of meditation. Um, I'm an active meditator. Uh, I, medication, meditation became part of my life uh, probably two, two and a half to three years ago when I had um, gone through some things coming out of what we just talked about um, and growing and figuring out how different things around me affected me, how different stressors triggered different emotions inside my body. And um, part of that resolve was meditation. Now, does that mean that people listening to this need to go out and start meditating? Well, maybe, but before we start doing that, I think an introduction to how meditation works, I, I think is very important. Um, so how that goes is, is meditation is not about controlling your thoughts and controlling what comes into you, how you process it and how it leaves you. 
meditation is more about just kind of sitting and acknowledging what is making you feel certain ways, whether that is a stress at work, whether that's a stress uh, in a disagreement with a spouse, a family member, or a friend, Hmm. whether it is what we're seeing on the mainstream media these days, um, or maybe it's something that we're experiencing ourselves. If we were a part of a, you know, if we were brave enough to participate in a protest or we were brave enough to stand up for what we believe in, that's going to make us feel certain ways. Mm. And what quite often what people do as a default, because we are built in a fight or flight mode, that's our inherent um, nature when it comes to stressors. We, we fight or we run away. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we can do is we need to acknowledge what we're feeling. So if we're seeing uh, protests on the news that turn violent, if we're hearing that narration of that news reporter talk about violence that's happening, I, we, it's important that we acknowledge that. It's important that we acknowledge that it makes us feel mad or it makes mm-hmm. us feel sad. Um, or it makes us feel worried about something. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and then by acknowledging that, we let it sit. And we let it kind of marinate a little bit until it leaves us. And it eventually will. Everything, everything comes and goes. So I, I guess to sum it up, I would think of, of meditation, of kind of sitting on the median of a highway, looking around you, and acknowledging the cars that are passing by Mm. not not wanting to stick our hands out to stop them but just acknowledging them like okay this guy's going this person's going this car is going right because when we acknowledge it we accept it and then when we accept it those automatic defenses come down we start to relax then we become more rational about how we can react to it um and so (laughs) What's the rational reaction that should be right now? Is turning off the TV a rational reaction? Um, I believe it is. I believe that turning off the television and creating boundaries around um, how you're absorbing your media is very important. Um, do I think people should not watch the mainstream media? Mm, that's up for them if to decide. Yeah, if that's something that you want to do, then sure. Um, I choose to watch the media and I choose to at times watch mainstream media because I like to see what people are saying because mm-hmm. I like to understand different sides of what's going on. Um, but I'm also at the point to where I can take things in, understand what's happening and also kind of let them go. And that, that comes after two to three years of some pretty consistent meditation every single day. I'm going to ask about that. Cause you are, you, you go to the gym still, you work out, you have sports in your life. So I feel like athletes, don't have that Zen approach, you know, when they're younger and then you just find it. Have you found a lot of athletes finding their approach like you have um, into this kind of calm, relaxed state from a, from an athletic career, if you, if you will. So early on, no, I didn't see that. I think that, um, and, and I've been personally involved in meditation for some professional sport teams over the last couple of years that I, that have significantly changed performance. Like uh-huh. I have seen, Um, athletes, pro athletes in almost every professional sport um, take on some sort of form of meditation. Uh, And it will, 
it has changed their performance. It has changed their approach to practice. It's changed their approach to their daily routines. And it has changed their approach to um, how they perform at their game and how they think. I'll share a story with you. I went through um, back in 2000 when I moved from California back to uh, New York. Um, I was uh, I had gone through a divorce. Um, so I had been seeking some help with a therapist, a really great therapist. Um, and I had been seeing her about once a week. And okay. I remember that uh, she was fit. She was fantastic. Um, I, and I remember I had a session in the afternoon with my therapist. It was a real, it was a rough session as, as they are, which was good. And then I met my father to play golf um, <laughs> about an hour later. I, Alex, I had the best golf game. I've ever had in my entire life. My father told me, he says, what is wrong with you? I was hitting every, every ball perfectly straight. I was measured. I was calm. I was collected. It was unbelievable mm. that I was able to have that conversation, that session with this wonderful person who is helping me through this really, really rough time. And I was able to go out there and perform as mm -hmm. a golfer the way that I did. I think it, was eight, it was 18 holes. I ended up shooting like an 81 or an 80 or something like that. I mean, it wasn't a professional score by any means, but for me, it was fantastic. And I, I remember to this day, 20 years ago, how I felt. I just felt so flat and calm. It was wow. unbelievable. And that, Did you me, feel that with the ball too? Because remember in, in, in Caddyshack, Chevy Chase was like, be the ball, be the ball. Na, 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 na. Did you feel that on the golf course? Uh, there's something to that. I mean, there's something about being able to visualize and visualization is something I help athletes do is being able to visualize your performance, be able to mm. visualize what does a perfect um, swing of the baseball bat look like? What does a perfect golf swing looks like? Like visualize yourself doing that. If you do that enough, they will be a nerve muscle connection that it'll help you accomplish what it is you need to do. So, so do you think do you think Ted Williams, my dad always told me the story of how he would practice over and over his swing. Was that a form of like calming himself just to get in that rhythm or is that a kind of different practice or do you think they're yeah. connected? Yeah, I, I believe they're connected. I believe, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I would call that a meditation, but I would call that, um, I, I, I would think that would be a repetitive physical visualization to where I'm sure I'm sure Williams thought about what it looks like to hit the ball. I'm sure he laid in bed thinking about his games. I'm sure he laid in bed thinking about what it was like to swing the bat. And then putting that to work, I think all of those, all of those actions together create a formula that equals a certain outcome. And I think that there's a lot of consistency around executing those actions that will yield a certain level of performance. And visualization and meditation mm -hmm. are part of that. Do you ever hear, I don't know if you're into musicals or Broadway shows and whatnot, but there's a famous line in Sunday in the Park with George that sticks with me all the time. A vision is a vision if it's only in your head, meaning you have to put that out in, in the real world after you envision it. And um, do you think people are still worried about getting that vision out there or, do, or are these athletes determined all around to get that vision out there? Yeah, I think that... Um... So I think we're talking about how to go ahead and act on a vision or belief that sure. you're, that you're, that you're doing. And I think that becomes a part of, um, you know, sitting down with yourself to decide 
you know, think about your values, your beliefs, and then how you want to execute on those values and beliefs in your world, whether it be in your job, whether it be in your hobby, um, or whether it be in your volunteer experience, um, or whether it be how you serve others. And I think that, you know, being able to put that vision to work completes the circle, so to speak, when it comes to folks' values and beliefs. Being able to feel good about what it is you're doing, about how you're helping people or what you do at work. Um, one of the things I do in my day job, which has nothing to do with health and wellness, is um, you know I work at a bank. I help people solve financial problems. I don't mm -hmm. think of myself as a banker that's selling things. I think of my job as being able to help people identify create plans and eventually solve problems amen to that and, and i, I feel really good about that it makes me feel super good that i was able to help somebody solve a problem whether it was something really really small or something really large that it changes their life i feel good about that are you able to share with us how the COVID has impacted your clients because you had mentioned an astounding number to keith michael and i and i, I don't know if you want to repeat it on my pod but i just think what you were telling us about the businesses coming to you was, was startling. Yeah, I think, um, I think that uh, the, the, the restrictions that our government has put on us when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and what we're being asked to do, while there's some, there is some rationale to it, I think that a lot of that has lacked a uh, vision of the long-term and what the long-term effects are gonna be for folks. And I've seen some of that in person um, where, where I work. Um, I'm working in the finance industry. I do work directly hand-in-hand -hand with business owners of all sizes, from multi-million dollar organizations to small mom-and-pop and, and single-owner sole proprietorships. And a lot of people have lost their businesses. Um, it's incredible. You mentioned 63. That's, that's just right. Yep, that, that was the latest. The, that was the latest rough number that I came across, where people have uh, businesses has, have just shut down. Um, some of them may be able to rebuild and they may be able to start over, which for some of them might actually be a good thing because they can kind of reset. Um, but that takes a lot of work and it's folks' livelihoods that have been affected mm -hmm. that I think was not necessarily taken into consideration when um, all these restrictions were put into place. Or, and I'm being very cynical here, maybe it was. That's kind of what I'm worried about too. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Yep. Well, let's, uh, and then of course, now you got these business owners worry about their stores being destroyed and that's, that's so much uh, stress added to it. Um, but I want to touch base on the athlete uh, portion. First of all, if there are any athletes happen to listen to this and want to get that Zen, get that meditation going, can they reach out to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I am actively taking on new clients when it comes to, um, when it comes to training, whether it be physical training, because I do do personal training. I do help um, athletes of all levels uh, work on their actual physical, uh, their physical training. Uh, and I'm beginning to work with more and more athletes on their mental training and some athletes work on both. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I welcome folks reaching out to me. Um, I, again, all levels just reach out to me and we can definitely work together. Tom, I've been sort of on a war path all week. Because I do hear stories of these athletes complaining about the money issue. And to me, it's just they're not reading the room right now. They're not seeing how people are struggling. It's all about the contract negotiation. Now, we do want to see baseball. We do want to see them fair, fairly play, paid. 
um, for 50, 60 games, whatever it's going to be. But it just drives me nuts that they just that's their focus, not really how to help. And that's not every player, but there are certain ones that are just speaking out. And I'm like, just just be with the moment and help people through this, not complain about what you're dealing with. Especially Scherzer. I heard he walked out of the deal, and I was like, come on, Max, be a leader. Be, be like uh, someone who can truly negotiate during a time like this. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um... – there's definitely a lot of drama around that. There's a lot of speculation around that. Of course, you know, we're not in those meetings, so we don't know uh, many times a lot of the bullet points that folks are being talked about. I think that money is, uh, money is an easy target to throw out there because everybody's passionate about money. Um, I know there's a lot of, um, it's particularly in baseball, because I do mm-hmm. have folks that are um, uh, playing in uh, on the diamond professionally that I work with that, there's a lot of concern about the conditions that they're being asked to adhere to, meaning that only certain players can come to um, the stadium into the field, into the practice facility at certain times. Um, You know, for example, they're looking to group the same six players. They can only practice together, be in the locker room, be in the clubhouse together, be in the locker room together, sit near each other for the entirety of the rest of the season, given the current situation. And, that is hard for a lot of guys. And I, I do know personally a lot of professional baseball players that are saying, you know what, I just want to take a break. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to blame that on these negotiations, if they're, if they're going to, because it's convenient for the media to latch onto that because folks can understand that. Right. Um, emotionally, folks understand money. Um, if that's how the media wants to report it, then that's fine. That's what they can do. But I think there's probably a lot more to it that you and I are not privy to. Probably so. And the owners are probably, you know, um, encroaching a little more than they should either. Like they should be more reasonable too. It's, it's a fair balance that they're trying to, to strike. Um, but the small business, I mean, is it a moral, is it not, um, is there no relationship between seeing these protests and then seeing the business owner locked in still? Is, am I wrong to make that connection? Cause it just drives me nuts. Yeah, it's definitely unique to see us go from what we've been experiencing over the last 60 to 90 days and being, you know, locked down or safer at home to all of a sudden all these protests um, happening and these demonstrations happening. I mean, I, mean, I think there's, there definitely is uh, validity to these demonstrations and these protests. And um, I have a lot of compassion for these folks and I, I commend them for the bravery they're showing and standing up for their cause. Um, I mean, do I think there's a connection or some sort of conspiracy around how it's playing out? I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. Oh no. I'm just saying though, it frustrates the mind to see them locked in while the protests are going on, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. And it makes me wonder, you know, do we really need to be locked down the way we are if folks are so easily going outside to fight for something they believe in, which again is commendable then why are we allowing that but telling people that they want to go out and build and run their business and provide a living for themselves, provide jobs for others, that they shouldn't go out and run their business? Like, it I just that doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's some interest there as well. And again, the media is going to choose to report what it gets, what gets attention and mm-hmm. how it, it gets reported. But you know, all in all, we're not being allowed to make individual decisions about how we want to live our lives because we feel like um, we're, we're afraid. Like we're being told that 
if you do this, you might get sick because 0.3% of the people that have gotten this have died. And at the same time, we're seeing the big businesses who are donating to the protests and donating to the cause really honored and really like, look at this company pitching in. And I'm just like, right. It, it is, right. I can't it's talk funny. about it. Or it's going to agitate me even more. No, I, and, and, and I get it. I get it. I mean, it's, it's, I find it interesting that I can go to Walmart with probably 80 other people in the building and be around within probably a, a 30, 30 foot radius of me, be around 18 people to buy a pair of jeans um, or to buy a gallon of milk, but I can't go to the small business that opened up two years ago to buy a pair of jeans when there might be only be one or two people in the store. There's one owner. That business is not allowed to open. Yeah. And I've always said we need, to, we need to respect small businesses beyond Small Business Saturday. But as we're talking, this dictates why we're only honoring them one day a year because that's what people feel like. They feel like we shouldn't not, – not people, but that's what maybe – leadership feels like on certain spectrums we should only honor them one day a year and the rest give them hell you know well 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 i said that's what we do in our culture we go ahead and we highlight things only periodically like we have you know october is breast cancer awareness month right mm -hmm. that's when the yes. nfl wears pink and you know they wear pink uh, the 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 officials wear black and pink shirts and mm. it, but why can't every month be breast cancer awareness month you know, why can't every month be uh, Veteran Appreciation Month? Um, why do we why, store the the troops back on the shelves after Memorial Day type of thing, you know? Yeah, like why does, you know, why does uh, January need to be Black History Month? Why can't every month be Black History Month? That's February, I think, actually. February, is it February? See, I don't even know because it's, I mean, I always thought it was because of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, but uh, if it's February, that's great. I mean, but again we're building walls around things about, okay, it's February 1st. Now we can start appreciating uh, black history. You know, why can't we do it on February, on March 1st and on January 31st as well? Like, why it's, do we have to create these trends? And I, and I, it's just, it's fascinating to me about how we attach ourselves to what everybody else and the masses are doing rather than just doing what we feel is right at the time. That's right for us. I, and this is where I kind of want to talk to other people on the other side of the spectrum, you know, other side say, hey, why were you guys so upset about the anti-lockdown protesters and now you're okay with this? Or why were you upset about this, but now you're okay with it? Like, first of all, are we talking to people the right way who we disagree with or could there be a better communication line? Oh, there could certainly be a better communication because we like to, you know, again, we go back to that fight or flight um, innate behavior that we have as humans is that we either we either fight or we run away um, and that's mm. a lot of how we communicate I mean look at social media I think social media is fantastic social media has expanded my world and put me in connection with people that I would never ever mm -hmm. like you and I probably wouldn't connect if it wasn't for social media in the form of a podcast that's true um, that's true I wouldn't be able to connect with probably 40% of the people I went to high school with because of you know, I'm able to do that because of social media, which is fantastic. But we also use social media as a weapon against ourselves and each mm -hmm. other to where we will have these arguments or what we call arguments or disagreements. And then what do we do? We either unfriend somebody, <laughs> we block them, or we say really mean things to them because it's easier to do that on a keyboard than it is in person. 
And know, so, so, and where you come in, how important is communication to meditation? How connected are they? Well, I think communication needs to be, um, it's really funny you bring this up because I just finished a course um, that was, uh, uh, that was a focus on um, Buddhist commun or communication in a Buddhist philosophy, but um, which is really where my meditation lies. But it's really just about being intentional around what it is you want to communicate. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the eight steps to the eightfold path of Buddhism is right speech. And right speech is about saying the right thing at the right time to get the right effect. And that's not necessarily right for me or right for the person I'm talking to. It's what's appropriate for the time and the medium. Mm. Um, so, for example, to put this in real world terms, if I'm having an interaction with somebody on Facebook, which I do frequently, um, you know, am I intentional about where I want this interaction to go? I mean, am sure. I communicating my point that I feel good about? whether or not somebody accepts it or not. And I try to be clear about my intention when I communicate something that I'm not seeking validation from my communication. Like I don't need to be validated. I share things on social media because I feel good about it and that I don't need that validation. Because I think if we're looking to seek validation mm -hmm. and we're looking to get likes and get clicks and getting people to comment and we get a little... Um, we get a little adrenaline or an endorphin hit when we see that little red number on our bell. Like, oh, we get a little, uh, you know, we get a little excited and we come back to that, um, which is great. But I think it's being able to just be clear about what it is we want to communicate, sharing it out there and being okay with whoever is going to accept it and communicate based on that. For those who do like the low bell ringing in the communication through Facebook, I, I got to be honest, I feel like this is an introvert's paradise. I don't have to be around anybody. But are you seeing something where even the introverts want to get back out there and talk to people? Yeah, I think social media gives, the, gives um, introverts a, a, a voice and a place to go ahead and interact. Um, whether they're doing it with intention or not, uh, that, that remains to be seen. And um, I think that if uh, you know, folks are using it in a way that is you know, getting them a certain type of gratification, you know, that, that's fine and well and good. And I believe that if people can do whatever they want, as long as they're not hurting anybody else, sure, they can do that. But I think we need to be careful because our words mean a lot to other people mm -hmm. and they mean mm -hmm. a lot to us. So I think, again, being intentional about that type of interaction on social media um, is, is, is important. And Social media gets such a bad rap. I see so many people be like, oh, why do we go on Facebook? It's so, it's, you know, it's horrible. It's bad. There's a lot of bad people. Like, yeah, there, there are. I mean, there's a lot of bad everything in the world. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Know, but it depends yep. upon how we're letting it affect us. Again, mm. it's the, back to that whole, you know, meditative behavior. It's like, are we taking in the right information? Are we letting it sit with us? And then are we letting it go? Well, I am so glad you brought up meditation because you actually just developed something new called the v uh, Vipassana. What, what is that uh, yeah, meditation? Yeah, meditation is the meditation I practice. And that's really just more of like a loving kindness meditation where you just really kind of sit. And part of your meditation is about thinking of others and thinking about, um, uh, you know, just sending out good wishes to people, um, both people that are close to you, people that you have good relationships with, people that are your relationships are fairly neutral and then people that maybe you have a negative relationship with, but you're still wanting to send them 
good thoughts mm-hmm. and I still want to wish them well. And uh, I, there's research out there that shows that that's very calming and that can have not just mental and emotional positive results, but also physiological, positive physiological results that again, help our immune system. And of course, we have mentioned on, on the Potter's pod um, about the physiology of actually getting back out there. I think there's going to be a big adjustment when we do walk around a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. It's um, our immune systems are going to, uh, I, I mean, I think they're going to, I don't think they're going to take a big a hit as we, you know, once thought, but I think it's, I think the hit our immune systems are taking is really on stress. Um, I think, yeah, we're not being exposed to things. We're not um, exposing ourselves to viruses and bacteria. We're, we're creating almost a forced obsessive, mm-hmm. compul- obsessive compulsiveness around keeping things clean and washing our hands and using sanitizer and gloves and masks. There's, you know, things that the media is cultivating there that I think we need to be mindful about individually. But I think when we do begin to come out and interact, um, it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens broadly. And it's going to be interesting to see how that human interaction takes place going forward. And how change it's going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also came up with another thing, the, um, I can read my handwriting, the unconditional um, positive, uh, I believe is what it's called. Yeah, unconditional positive regard. That's, uh, that's really kind of the basis of my coaching philosophy. And it's not, um, it's not something I came up with. It's something that one of that, uh, um, an instructor shared with me in one of my classes that I took was about as a coach, um, it's important to attach yourself to the mindset that the person you're working with has it completely within their own ability in themselves somewhere to perform executes mm-hmm. the behaviors and meet the goals that they set for themselves all within them. It's not my job to meet their goals for them or to really get them to their goals. Um, so I think that being in that mindset as a coach and being able to fully attach myself to seeing that in somebody really helps me a couple things. Number one, it helps me identify who I want to work with and who I think can really get to where they want to go because Quite frankly, some people aren't ready. Like they mm-hmm. say they want to do one thing, but their actions, behaviors, and what I see in their mindset is not, they're not ready to do that. So my, I kind of step in and help, try to help them self-realize that. But when I find that in somebody, it makes me so excited because it makes me feel good about having them do certain things sure. that create the behaviors that get them to where they want to go. And it gives me so much emotional satisfaction to see somebody realize Mm -hmm. their own potential in results. Even if it's just a little thing, like they're able to make it through three days without having a soda, or they're able to make it an entire week getting eight hours of sleep, Mm. you know, those little things and they, they see those results. And, you know, I drew that back to my coaching with youth athletes. And when I see somebody get the concept of a certain game. Right. That's exciting. Exit, and then, but then you see it in their eyes, like their eyes light up and they begin to form. It's like not just their mouth smiles, but their entire body smiles. And that's, and I'm moment, sure, that's momentum. I'm sure also that some of these kids that you teach and coach have sort of an ego going. So when you come in there with a different approach, they start becoming a team player. Would you say you've seen that as well? 
Yeah, so that's another thing about coaching that's really important, especially in um, in, in athletes um, and how their performance and how their activities and personal behaviors affect the team environment, but particularly with youth athletes and being able to help. Um, I work with coaches too and helping coaches develop their behaviors as a coach and as a manager into what it is they can do to help team cohesion through individual performance and helping young athletes at the right age, because of course, you know, athletes at a certain, an eight-year-old athlete is not going to understand that concept like a 15-year-old athlete would, but helping coaches implement the right strategies at the right time, at the right age for that athlete. So they realize like, oh yeah, I can do this on the ice and perform this way. But when I do that, it helps my team do this. And that creates a much more balanced youth athlete that I think uh, has a much more potential that they can go towards. Has sports truly stopped during this lockdown or are coaches providing drills and other ideas that their kids can implement uh, during this time? So in my experience around here in youth sports, um, everything is uh, just about completely shut down until maybe about a week ago um, when things have started to open up to uh, sports happening in outdoor environments only and in groups of 10 or less. Um, so for example, my, both my boys play ice hockey. Um, okay. Their coaches and their organizations have provided outdoor activities in the parking lots of their ice rink because we still can't go inside ice rinks right now. Um, but the state, the Commonwealth has allowed us to uh, have outdoor activities. So it's been primarily dry land conditioning um, in groups of 10 or less, which includes the coaches or trainers. Wow. Hey, have you, uh, and uh, so how many kids do you have just out of curiosity? I didn't, I didn't know. Um, I have two boys, a 15 year old and a 13 year old. Are they doing the e-learning? How's that whole thing been? Uh, yeah, um, they, they are. I have a, I have a rising 10th grader now and, and a, a rising eighth grader who are uh, both done with school. And since I want to say March 13th, I believe it was Friday the 13th was their last mm-hmm. day of in-person classes and they've been doing distance learning uh, online since it's been and interesting that's for sure i'm sure because a lot of our kids need the interaction still in person and we're just depriving them of that yeah we are from a from an academic academic per- perspective absolutely i mean both of my kids have participated in classes that are being held via zoom or some other other ways they've had some individual interactions with their instruct with their teachers um but i'm finding that um where my kids are getting most of their interaction is you know, they're not really hanging out with kids in the neighborhood. I mean, they'll, mm. they'll go out on their rollerblades once in a while. They'll, they'll do that. But they're playing video games, Alex. I mean, they're, mm. they're playing online video games and they're chatting with their friends, which honestly, I'm cool with. I've heard of, but I've, and I'm interesting. And I've heard also that the parents don't mind seeing what the public schools are teaching their kids through this. Have you experienced that too? Like, wow, that's what they're teaching you type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, um, yeah, I can't, it's, I try really, really hard not to be critical of our sure. education system and our, our teachers because I can't, um, you know, I'm not a teacher, so I can't imagine what they've been going through, especially teachers that are at home with their own kids and mm-hmm. having to run these classes and still having to be a, a mom or a dad at home. That is super Wild. tough. Yeah. So I think, um you know, having that information and, you know, it's been tough for them. I know that, um, you know, my kids are, uh, you know, I've just, the way we've helped our kids is just letting them know that here's what's going on. 
you know, this is the world we're living in. Um, and now, but you're being, you're able to learn behaviors and habits. We're actually told them that they're, that they're lucky because when you go to college in one will go in college in six years if they decide to go to college and one will go to college in three years if he decides to go to college college is most likely going to be nearly 80 to 100 percent online in a few years mm. anyways so you're able to develop some behaviors that you'll be able to use so you're actually getting ahead while this may seem like a setback academically and you yes you may not be learning about you know, ancient Rome, and you may not be learning about, you know, geometry and science, and you may not be learning those concepts, but you're learning how to self-manage your work. Mm. And I've actually turned it around to be like, you know what, guys, you're in control. Like if you, you have this mm -hmm. work you need to do, you can show up, of course, for your scheduled Zoom sessions. Yes, show up for that. But if you're given, you have a day where you have no meetings, think about it like me at work. If I have a day, I have no meetings, I'm in control of my day. Mm -hmm. If you have something that's due, then you could do it at seven in the morning. You could do it at 11 o'clock at night, but you know it needs to be done. So this is a time for them to exercise their discretion about how they manage their time. If you want to play video games for seven hours a day, that's fine. Go for it. Have fun. But just know that, okay, you need to self-manage. Stop at four. Spend an hour doing work. Then mm. play again. Mm. Stop at four. Like you're, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping they're getting this, and they are to some degree that they're able to self-manage their time. So while it's very negative experience, there's an opportunity to turn it around to make it very positive. Tom, I got to share something personal because I feel the yeah. same way about my work because I'm still working from home, thank God, with radio. But you know, in the office space, I have all these colleagues I want to see and hang out with. And sometimes right. the work isn't always done. Yet here, sitting right in front of my computer, I am forced to focus because that's all I got, right? So right. it's like... Yeah questioning i'm questioning myself how am i going to transfer this back into the workspace that's what i'm working on and i'm sure others are too yeah i've thought about that in my work environment because i do work i work in a bank branch our doors were typically open i would have clients walk in and out all the time um i'd have coworkers that would be there all the time um i had 12 people that worked in my office um and it's not a large office it's not small either but i mean we had a really great working relationship now we've gone from 12 to four mm. um so i'm working with the same four people all the time so there's been a, a forced change to it um so uh so yeah there's definitely been an adjustment um there's been some positives because i've sure. been able to really control a little bit more about what it is we're doing i love to problem solve so part of what we're doing is helping clients do their banking differently Okay. Versus what, and it's actually helped people because now they realize, well, I really don't need to go to the bank. I could spend more time on my business. I don't need to spend 35 minutes going to the bank. I can do this. So I really enjoyed that part of it. But I do miss the face-to-face -face interaction that sure. I can sit down next to somebody and talk to them about their families, their business. And, oh, by the way, let's go ahead and do your mortgage, something like that. I well, do miss and, that. and here's what's changing it too. The app, we got all these apps for people, and I'm sure that's been so utilized more so than ever before these last three months. Oh, yeah. There's definitely been a lot of education around showing people how to you know, use technology that they were previously not, not wanting to use before, but sure. some of them have been forced into it. Well, you're a business guy, and I got to ask you this then. Jobs report shows an actual growth in jobs. How did that happen when we're supposed to be all in lockdown? How did that happen? 
Well, when you hit rock bottom, there's really no place to go, right? But up. Sure. So there's, I think, a little bit there. Um, I also think that we are seeing some businesses go back to work. But keep in mind, Alex, too, that well, there was something really big that happened um, probably from the second week of April all the way through even just the last week is we had the what the SBA called the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection mm -hmm. Program, which was part of the CARES Act. Part of the CARES Act is businesses were given a certain amount of money based upon what they paid in payroll over the last year for businesses to bring people back to work. Huh. So it's interesting to see that those unemployment numbers have improved or they've improved, but are those jobs really happening? Or are those people that received the Paycheck Protection Program dollars paying it out so people can, oh, I'm getting this from my employer. I don't need to file unemployment. Right. It drives the unemployment numbers down. So while, yes, I'm sure there are some jobs out there that are getting back to work and there are parts of the country that are more open than mm -hmm. other parts of the country, like you're seeing in New York and like what I'm seeing in Virginia, Florida is almost 100% open. Well, I, I got to say, I wouldn't be surprised if Northam starts protesting with everybody while, while you guys are locked in. You know, I just see that happening. So. Yeah, it could. It, it really could. Because <laughs> we've already seen Governor Whitmer do it, which kind of made me sick, but that's another story. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad we got this first conversation and I definitely want to have back as we update and get into this a little more, but um, yeah. where can people find you again? I know you have a website and you have your Twitter, right? Yeah, I, I am on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at Hey Tom Barbieri. That's H E Y T O M B A R B I E R I. Um, so I'm a, I, I'm not really big on Twitter. I'm, I'm there once in a while though. I think Facebook is my primary social media. Um, channel like sure. most 49 year old uh, men are and the kids will laugh at me um, i am on the instagram too at hey tom barbieri um, as well um, and if you just google tom barbieri you go to my website tombarbieri.com i'm there but yeah facebook's a great place to connect send me a message send me a friend request i'll be happy to connect i love having conversations with people um even randomly just you know talking picking up the phone talk to somebody i've never met before have you uh, had, do you recorded meditations for your YouTube at all? Or? It's funny you say that. I'm actually in the process of putting that together. So I think in probably in the next, um, the next couple of weeks, I should probably begin to share some information that uh, I have that coming out. So yeah, I will at some point. Very cool. We'll look forward to that. Hey, Tom, yeah. thank you so much for joining us and come back. Thank you, Alex. This has been great. I mean, I really appreciate, you know, getting to know you and us, uh, you know, starting this friendship and I'd love to come back, you know, anytime you want to have me. Sounds good. I'm Alex Garrett. This has been the Saturday sit down and we'll talk to you soon. Uh, hold on.